Um, we're, we're, so we're going through the book of Luke right now. We're just the beginning portion, kind of coming up to Advent and Jesus coming in Luke chapter 2. And so we've spent these four weeks of Advent looking at the first chapter and the different stories that kind of come in there. And we're on the last one in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. So if you have your Bible, you can turn uh, there uh, to read along as, as we go. Um, but as you do that, uh, when I was doing this study, I kind of um, thought about something that happened about 18 months ago in Thailand. Maybe you're aware of it. It hit international news, but there was a soccer team of 11 to 13-year-old boys and their soccer coach who had just finished a practice on a Saturday morning, and as per tradition, they took God on their bikes, and they went for a bike ride to uh, uh, like this well-known cave, and they went caving for a little while. So they blocked their bikes up outside. They took their cleats and shin pads off, left them there by their bikes, and then walked into this seven-mile-long cave just for an adventure. What the coach didn't know was that um, a monsoon was coming. So while they're deep inside this cave, the rains started, the water pooled, and it trapped them inside this cave. So here's a coach with 12 young boys in the pitch black, seven miles down a cave that they cannot get out. There, the water is so mucky and muddy from the monsoons that you couldn't see inches in front of your face. And they were there for 10 days. 10 days of darkness. 10 days of not knowing if somebody was coming. 10 days of prayer, of worry, thinking about the, the, the things I ought to have said, or should we even have come here, the regrets, the, the challenges, the, the darkness, no light, no food, no place to go to the washroom for 10 days. What they didn't know is that there was an international cry for divers who had the capacity to come and navigate these caves with the water the way that it was, with the way that it rushed. And so people from all over the world came to save these 12 boys and their coach. So much so that they actually needed to find an anesthetist who could knock the boys out when they actually got there because they wouldn't be able to survive the swim from where they were to the entrance of the cave because they would panic under the water. So they had to find somebody who was skilled enough at diving and could administer the right kind of medication so that they wouldn't, you know, die from the medication but would fall asleep long enough that they could get them out. Miraculously, all 13 people were saved. But it did come at a cost. There was a, a Thai Navy SEAL who tried to go in there and he lost his life at, at 38 years old trying to save these boys. They entered that cave on June 23rd and the last person came out on July 10th. Can you imagine the darkness? The fear the worry, 
day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, having, having lost all track of time. 10 days. At what point do you think you would have thought, no one's coming? This is, this is the end. I will die here. And then imagine the joy, the elation, the hope, the praise that would come out when you saw a light in the water. When that first diver poked its head above the water with the, with the headlamp on, imagine the joy that would have filled your soul. We are saved. People know we're here. There is hope for a future. I could not imagine being in that circumstance. But you know, Zechariah could have. I think that outside of the physical reality of being trapped in a specific spot like this, all of us at some point in time in our lives, maybe even right now, feel like we sit in a dark place like that. Cut off, unsavable, unredeemable. We're just going to die here in this. And you know, the, the, the people of Israel felt that, right? For 400 years, they had been waiting for God's voice. See, the entire Old Testament, their entire history was of God speaking to them through the prophets and guiding them towards the land that he had for them, giving them a king, bringing people along whose voice would be his voice and remind them of his promises, would remind them of the direction that he wanted them to go, would bring them back to the righteous way that they ought to live, would correct them where necessary, and then silence for 400 years. 400 years of wondering, has God abandoned us? Are we just left to ourselves? Does he care anymore? Does he love us? What is he doing up there? Maybe, maybe he has abandoned us. Maybe we are doomed. Maybe we are dead. And then, and then, 400 years later, Zechariah sits in the temple when he's offering praises to God and an angel shows up and says, I'm an angel from the Lord and I have a message for you. Like this is the pinnacle of Zechariah's career, right? Like he gets chosen to go into the temple to represent God and he just doesn't do this rotely like people have done for 400 years. Boom, an angel shows up. And his response is, I don't believe you. Like they've been waiting 400 years. And his response is, eh, I don't think so. Like that's, that's a little too hard for me to believe. And so he is mute and deaf. And the angel promises that his son would pave the way for, for God. And then he goes, he goes home to his wife and finds out that she's pregnant, like miracle upon miracles. Like we're too old for this kind of thing. And as, as this baby grows inside, he starts to think about, man, what is it that the angel said? Oh, man, do I regret that. I regret my interaction there. Because clearly, like, I didn't think this was possible. Look at this. I'm like, I'm such a fool. 
right? And the, 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 the time comes for the baby to be born, for John to be born, and like people gather because they're thinking, this is, this is strange. Elizabeth shouldn't be having a baby. She's too old. People gather around her, and when she has the baby, and at eight days, culturally, they would come and do a circumcision um, ceremony, and that's when they would name the child. So they're expecting. They're like, okay, so his name's going to be Zechariah, right? Like after his dad, the priest. And she says, no, 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 his name's going to be John, which means God is gracious. They're like, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. Nobody in your family's named John. That's what we do. You name it after a grandfather or a father, you, like someone in your family. So they look to Zechariah. What, what, what's your son going to be named? He write, get, gets a tablet and writes on it, his name will be John. And immediately his mouth is opened and his ears are opened and he begins to bless God and praise God. Nine months of it bottled up inside. Nine months of thinking about the failure, the, the, the challenge, the, like the, the, the difficulty that, that he's actually been through here, and he explodes with praise. And I think as we look at this, this song of praise, this song of prophecy, the benediction, as it's called, and we kind of learn three things about what Zechariah learned over these nine months. First, we learn that he's motivated by redemption. Second, that he is filled with hope. And third, that he is compelled to worship. So first, look with me at Luke 1, 68 to 70. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. See, Zechariah would have had a long time to think about the words of the angel. Right? Like when he was confronted with the angel, the angel said that your wife will be with child, you shall call him John, and he will turn the hearts of, their, of the fathers to their children. And he would have had nine months to start to ponder, what does that mean? Nine months to think, turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. And, and in his reflection, he would have remembered the prophet Malachi, the last prophet to speak. He would remember Malachi chapter four, verse five and six where God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, the, the great and awesome day of the Lord wasn't necessarily a positive thing. Because the, 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 the history of Israel was that when God came, he came in judgment because of their failure to be his people. 
So Zechariah would have read this and said, oh, okay, so before that day comes, before the day of judgment comes, before God comes and makes right what is wrong and brings people to account, he's going to send someone like Elijah, a prophet of old. He's going to ask, he's going he's to point people to turn from their ways and receive the mercy of God. And my, my son is going to be that one. He's going to be that Elijah who's going to turn people's hearts back towards God, that they're going to repent of their ways and they're going to turn towards each other. They're going to turn back to God. They're going to recognize that God is good, that his ways are right, and my son is going to call them back to that. The nation of Israel will receive mercy instead of judgment. They will receive redemption instead of condemnation. Jesus said so much, uh, as much in John chapter three. He says, I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but I've come into the world to save it. But this goes beyond a nationalistic kind of the people of Israel will be freed from the Roman enslavement and all of the oppression that they had experienced, it actually applies to Zechariah himself. See, he wasn't just celebrating and reflecting on the national reality that God would save his people, but that he had been redeemed. See, in his moment, when he should shine as a priest, when all of his training came to bear, he failed. Like, you know, you train for something, that game-ending three-pointer to, to win the first round of the NBA playoffs, game seven, you're looking for that amazing shot, and it never gets to be an amazing shot if it's an air ball. But like Zechariah airballs this thing, right? Like God comes and visits and explains to him, this is what's gonna happen. I'm using explicit Scripture that you should know as a priest. And your question is, nah, I'm not gonna, I, I just, I can't believe that. Like he, he, he knew what happened with Abraham and Sarah, right? That God called out Abraham and said, I'm gonna give you a son. And Abraham's like, do you know how old I am? And, and God does it. And Zechariah has like chance 2.0. Like he has even like, like he can look back and see that God has done this before. And his response is, nah, I don't think so. But instead of judgment, instead of condemnation, Zechariah has, has, has the opportunity to see his own life be an enactment of God's redemption. That when Zechariah fails, God turns it into a, a, a parable of what it is that God does with his people. And so when, when Zechariah's tongue is loosed and his ears are open, he just he, he explodes with praise because this redemption is for him. It is his. When he failed, God was merciful and gave him salvation visited him and brought redemption. 
used the voices of old, the prophets of old, to speak into him truth and show him the ways of God and bring mercy and grace onto his life. And so he praises God. But second, he is filled with such hope because of this reality. In uh, verse 76 and following, he kind of turns his reflection to his son. And he says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, he would have reflected again on the angel's word, your son will prepare the way for the Lord. He would have gone, where where have I heard that? Where in the past have I heard that voice, that prophet of old? Oh yeah, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Ah, yes, this this was prophesied that, that there would be someone that would come as a voice in the wilderness. You know, it's the end of our passage, verse verse 80. And he goes into the wilderness. John is this voice in the wilderness and his father thinking about what Isaiah had said previously comes and goes, this this is my son. He He is pointing to something greater. He is pointing to something bigger. He is actually pointing to a light that is coming, a salvation that will come and I can have hope. You see, Isaiah didn't stop here just kind of randomly referencing a voice in the desert. No, 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 previously in verse, or in chapter nine, he talks about this. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Does that, does that sound familiar? Is that not just what we read in Zechariah, that he had kind of processed what this looked like, that the prophet Isaiah had talked about, that God would send a light into the darkness, that he would find people in the cave, that the light would shine, and that he would rescue them. And later on in Isaiah chapter 9, he says this in verse 6, six For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David, or on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it 
and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what, this, this, this is what my son is pointing to that there will come a light in the darkness that we feel, that there will come a salvation, that someone in the line of David will come up, will free us from the oppression that we feel. And man, I am so full of hope. God will save us. God is starting that. I can see the first light under the water. I can see in the murk and mire of this world when I thought that no one would come, that nothing would happen. Oh, there is a light here. There's a light. And I can have so much hope in it. Zechariah's song of prophecy of benediction is so filled, so permeated with hope because his son, the promise of this angel, points to a salvation of God for him, for his people. And rightly, it compels him to worship Verse 71. After he's talked about why it is that God should be blessed because he's visited us and redeemed us and brought this salvation for us and spoken through the mouths of prophets, he says this, that, so he's done all of that so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, when, when Zechariah starts to recognize what it is that God has done, what God is doing through him, through the people of God, through the prophets that he sent before, when he starts to recognize that it's for salvation, that it brings him such hope, he cannot help but bless God. That's the first thing that happens when you read it. As, as kind of the story unfolds and his mouth is loosed, he doesn't, he doesn't confirm Elizabeth's, like his son, this name will be son. He doesn't say, uh, say anything about John, his first thing is to bless God. He explodes in praise and worship towards God. Look what God has done. Look what he's revealed to me. Look at how his mercy has been in my life. And so I just am praising him and extolling him for all that he is and the glory that he has shown me and the mercy that he's had on me. Do, do, you, do you see it? God is so great that he would use someone as foolish as me to bring into the world someone as great as my son to point to someone even greater. He deserves all praise and all glory and all power forever and ever and ever. And it explodes out of him. See, when, when Zechariah really understands what God's mercy does in his life and how it redeems the mistakes that he makes and draws him out of darkness into light. Man, he is so filled with hope and so drawn to praise the one who saved him. Isn't that, isn't that true in our own circumstances? 
I mean, scripture is fairly clear that, that we kind of sit in a world that is so twisted and dark, kind of bent in on itself. We know that in our own lives with the, with the things that we know we ought to do but we cannot seem to do properly and what we shouldn't do, we seem to be so drawn towards and if it's not even in our own lives, we can just look at the world around us and we can see the darkness, we can feel the oppression and we are just sucked in darkness and wondering who will save us. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers is a QB for the uh, Green Bay Packers. And when he was growing up, he was kind of small. They didn't think he had a good enough arm, but he really loved to play football. So he worked really hard, and he kind of took this, un, like this underdog kind of mentality. He kind of took this like, oh, you don't think I can? Well, I will. He kind of pulled himself off by his own bootstraps Every time he failed, he would get better. Failed, he would get better. You think I can't? Yes, I can. And he would kind of play this narrative over in his head. That's what motivated him. People think I can't, but I will. Sure enough, he got drafted. He got the opportunity to play for the Green Bay Packers. And then he ended up bringing the Green Bay Packers all the way to the, sta to the Stanley Cup. Whoa. <laughs> to the Super Bowl. I am a sports guy, I promise. I just so long for the Canucks to win. <laughs> I just came there. Matt, Matt knows what I'm talking about. So he brought them all the way to the Super Bowl and won it. He is holding the Vince Lombardi trophy in his hands. The confetti is falling and the thought going through his mind is, I have seen the bottom and I have seen the top and there is no peace here. This does not fill the hole I know exists. It doesn't bring light into my life. It doesn't right the wrongs that I know are in this world and I, this just doesn't do it. Are you sitting there today in that circumstance? Or the, the things that are around us, the career and the success and the, the, the material wealth of the world. Is it physical health that you've reached the pinnacle of and go, man, I don't have that hope. I still feel that darkness. I still feel trapped and I don't know why. Man, God, God came to bring light into that. God came to redeem you, to visit you in that time of need, to come beside you in mercy and compassion and say, come, follow me. Repent of that twistedness and follow me. I will show you a life of light and love and compassion and hope and peace and joy. It is found in my son, Jesus. And in him, you have fullness of life. 
Man, if, if you hear that today and your soul burns within you, your heart burns within you, please respond to Christ in faith. But man, I know that we actually sit here as Christians day in and day out and we look back on our week and we think, man, I'm exactly like Zechariah. You know how often I've failed this week? How many times I knew the good that I ought to do and I didn't do it? There's no way God can redeem that. Why would God visit me in that? I am a failure. But the story of Zechariah is exactly the opposite of that. Is that God takes the brokenness in you and he comes alongside in mercy and grace. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and he puts his arm around you and says, come on, let's try again. I will take your mistakes and I will make them something beautiful. Trust me. God came to redeem you, to draw you closer to himself and he will use the errors in your life. He will use the mistakes that you look on in regret and turn them into something beautiful and make you more like Jesus. And doesn't that give you hope? that God did not leave you in your sin, that he did not leave you in the dark cave to rot, but he came and redeemed you. Shouldn't that then flavor our lives? That as we go into the world, as we engage with those around us, as we look at our neighbors and work in our schools and face the disease in front of us, should it not give us hope and optimism? Not pessimism and fear. See, Zechariah understood that his God was a God who could do the impossible because he saw his wife get pregnant. Your God is a God who can do the impossible. So why can't we have hope? Why can't we be people of optimism and joy and peace? That God came to save you in your sin when you were rebellious and enemies. That now that you call him Lord, why would he not give you all that you need so that you can accomplish the things in life that bring him glory? Can you not face the disease with joy and optimism? Can you not go to work and be hopeful and full of peace and bring light to your coworkers around you? Can you not live in confidence that God has overcome the world and darkness flees from light and your children are in his hands. Man, when we understand that God came to save and he redeems and he comes alongside in mercy and grace, we should so be filled with hope there is a future ahead of us where God is working it out in front of us and he will give us all that we need. 
And man, that should turn our eyes upwards into like just explosions of joyful worship, shouldn't it? I have a friend who uh, has gone to church for years and years and years, and his MO is he'll drop his kids off with his wife, then he goes to a coffee shop, and he'll come back just in time for the sermon because he just doesn't like to sing. I don't know. I think there's something wrong with that. And when we, when we understand what it is that God has done, what it is that he's spoken through his word, what it is that he has done in our lives through his spirit, through his son, that we should be joyfully praising him for his glorious good works in our lives. Should we not? That our eyes should be lifted up and that we should just say, you, you deserve all glory and all power because look what you've done to me. This guy who just continually makes mistakes over here, you keep coming alongside, you keep putting your arm around, you say, turn around, come this way, keep coming, I'll show you the way of life, I'll show you the way of truth, I'll show you the way of grace. Just keep coming. Man, shouldn't, shouldn't I then, shouldn't my soul just then be exploding with gratitude and joy towards a God who does not leave me in death, does not leave me to die? Man, I should be full of worship. Sam Storms in uh, one of his books says this, the ultimate goal of theology, that is the study of God, to know God and what he said in his scripture, the ultimate goal of theology is not Knowledge, but worship. That the more we know God, the more our eyes should be raised, the more that our hands should be raised, the more that our hearts should be full of joy, and the more that His praises should be coming off of our tongues. Are we people of praise? Glorying in what God has done in us, what He is doing through us. Are we people of praise? Horatio Spafford um, was a lawyer that lived in kind of the Chicago area, and in 1871, uh, he had a, a bunch of real estate in Chicago, and he had uh, four daughters and a youngest son, and um, in 1871 was the Great Chicago Fire, and he lost a ton of his real estate. And he also lost his two-year-old son in the fire. Two years later, as they were trying to figure out, you know, the aftermath of all of this um, carnage, he had to try and, like, figure out how is this going to work with the properties that had burnt down, and he's trying to figure out what the zoning issues were. Uh, him and his family decided to go um, to England. But because of last-minute kinds of issues, he ended up having to stay behind and was going to take the next ship out. So he, he stayed behind to do his business, and his wife and his four daughters got on that boat, and halfway there, it sunk. And he received a telegram from his wife in England that said, survived alone. In two years, he had lost all five of his children. And most of what he owned. And he got on the next ship to go and meet his wife after this tragedy. And the ship's captain, knowing what had happened, called him up to the bridge. 
And he said, right now we're passing over the spot where you lost your daughters. And he went down to his cabin and he wrote this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. This man, so crushed by life and the darkness around it, had it in him to have such hope and joy and praise for God because he knew what, it, what he had received. Man, he had right relationship with God. And so even in the darkest moment, even in the cave, when he knew that, that like there is no saving, I am, like, I am undone here. In this moment, he has hope and praise for God because he knew of God's salvation. He knew of God's rich mercy. He knew of his redemption. He knew that God had visited him and saved him. Oh, that we would be people of hope. So motivated by the salvation we have received in Christ that it would explode from us in praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a season to reflect on the anticipation of Jesus coming and what that means for us. That God, as we reflect on you coming and humbling yourself, that we can know salvation, that we can know redemption, that we can have a, a God of mercy and grace and love come alongside us and point us towards you. Oh God, would that fill us with such hope? Would your spirit rest upon us? Would that fill us with such hope that we can have joy in all circumstances, that we can praise you in all circumstances, God, and that we can look to the world around us and say, look, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. And would we find ourselves declaring it is well with my soul. In your name we pray, amen.